Let's look at James chapter 3 together. I'm going to read the first uh, 12 verses of this chapter. This is the Word of God. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Well, before we uh, consider this passage together this morning, we're going to pray. Uh, one a very particular item uh, for prayer that was sent out on uh, the prayer chain yesterday is that uh, Todd Branch Flower, many of you know the Branch Flowers, uh, Todd has been uh, battling with cancer for a significant period of time, and this weekend he passed away. And so we want to uh, express, I want to, on behalf of uh, the church family, staff express our condolences to you. And also uh, to, of course, say that we will be praying for you and doing whatever we can uh, to support you and the children uh, throughout this time. Uh, the funeral is scheduled for Friday, uh, this coming Friday at 11 a.m. It's going to be at McIntyre, Gilbert and Sons, uh, and it's gonna be, uh, there's going to be a visitation Wednesday from 2 to 4 and from 7 to 9. So if you're able to make it to the visitation, Wednesday, 2 to 4, 7 to 9, uh, the funeral Friday at 11, not here at the church, but at uh, Gilbert and Sons. Let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that uh, by your uh, compassion and by your mercy, you would meet uh, everyone today where they are. And we recognize that uh, some are coming from paths of uh, rejoicing this week, 
and some are coming from uh, difficult uh, paths. And for the branch flowers, Lord, we, we just ask in a very special way that you will give a peace to them that passes all understanding, uh, that you will just surround them with love and with care and with uh, your strength and compassion and grace. Uh, give them all that they need. Father, I pray that uh, they will also experience uh, the love and support of uh, friends and family and community. Uh, Father, may we as a church be mindful uh, to, uh, to express our love and care for them, not just in the next few days, but also uh, in, in the long term as uh, life will continue to go on and decisions will continue to be made. Lord, help us as a community to love well and to live well. Pray in a special way, Lord, uh, for Steph. And Lord, give her all the wisdom and grace and strength that she needs. We pray for the children, for Charlotte and Emily and Gavin. Lord, we pray that you will minister deeply uh, in their hearts, Lord, uh, for whatever level of understanding that they have at their different ages. Lord, just give them strength. Give them, give them bright hope. Give them all that they need. Father, we would ask that this morning you would open your word to us. Father, there are things in this passage which are difficult, uh, not really remotely difficult to understand, but just really hard to live out. It's really hard to, to put away the things that this passage calls us to put aside. It's really easy just to live with certain patterns of speech and communication. It's, it's natural to us. And so we require uh, a work of your Spirit. We pray that your Spirit will minister to us and open your Word. Lord, correct us. Uh, help us to, to learn to, to walk and to talk in ways that are pleasing and honoring to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'll say this uh, just before I forget. Uh, it was announced that, you know, we have the 2D luncheon for uh, the university students, and I just want to mention this. We want all of you to come and recognize that uh, today, not everyone actually ever carries cash. And so, if you don't have a toonie, uh, that's entirely fine. We have text to give. Uh, and, and so, you're still more than welcome uh, to attend, uh, and even if that's not quite set up yet, then you can come anyway. We want you there no matter what. And we value your time. We really do. I, I, we, no one takes for granted uh, anyone coming here at any point. And life can be very busy. It's one of the reasons, actually, that it's really good to try to carve out time to meet with the Lord corporately. And that's part of the rhythm of life that's really important for us to do. But for you who are students who are going to be staying, also recognize that you, you may have other things you're doing this afternoon, either socially or, or academically. And so as soon as the service is over, we're going to ask you, you can sort of just make your way back to the fellowship room. We're going to be trying to serve you uh, lunch as soon as we can. Uh, we're going to try to be very respectful of your time as well, okay? So uh, immediately after the service, just go uh, right on out. Now, also, I very rarely um, apply texts to individuals publicly by name, but I'm going to do that this morning. 
my understanding is that in a couple of weeks, there is going to be a women's event, big questions, dealing with the perennial issue of uh, suffering and evil in the world. And Sarah, my understanding is that you are teaching that session. Is this correct? That is correct. Sarah, just know that you will be judged more strictly for taking that on. And uh, better you than me, so thank you for shielding me from greater judgment uh, in working through that session. Part of this is you read this text and you say, well, who on earth would ever want to do this then? Like, you would have to be crazy to ever want to teach anyone in a biblical theological capacity. Why would you do this? What you get, besides the extraordinary riches and fame that attend to being a teacher in the church, is you also get judged more strictly. Well, who wants that? Honestly, who looks forward to being judged by God and giving account for their life at the best of times? Let alone to have added to that, by the way, because of your calling, you'll be judged more strictly than anyone else. Who desires that? I remember you will probably be very discouraged to know how, how you came this close to avoiding ever knowing me. Uh, years ago, I was just starting out, and uh, there was a youth conference that was going on, and they were going to exposit the book of James, and so they asked me to speak on James 3. It's about 20 years ago now, I suppose. And I remember working through this text, thinking, I'm going to resign. I'm, I'm not doing this. I, I, I am not going to do this with my life. Uh, not only because I don't want to be judged more strictly in the end, but because like, I don't feel qualified for this. And so if I had decided to quit, the last number of years for you would have been very different, and probably a lot better. Uh, nonetheless, you know, this is the sort of thing where in terms of James, you have to take it seriously. Like, you have to take these texts seriously. Now, note it also doesn't say, not maybe you should presume to be pastors or elders. I mean, that's probably implied in terms of teaching ministry in the church. But for any of you who are ever teaching anyone, formally, yes, this is more serious. There, there are certain callings that attend to that. But, but even then, you sort of abstract, you say, well, I'm, I, I don't have an official teaching capacity in the church. That's fine. Uh, but what about your neighbors? What about your kids? In other words, teaching is really important. And it's really serious, and the consequences are really sobering, uh, depending on sort of the magnitude of responsibilities that God gives you. So not many of you should become teachers, or not many of you should presume to be teachers. Well, why? Well, part of it is this, and, and I don't say this, uh, I, I'm not uh, denigrating colleagues, and I'm also not being unnecessarily Uh, uh, self-deprecating either. I I actually take this to be roughly true. It's it's just my experience, so it's it's only as valid as my experience goes, but but I take this to be roughly true. Sam has a lot more years of experience in in this than I do, so he can he can correct me if I'm wrong. Being a pastor teacher does not in any way automatically make you godlier than anyone else. That's true, right? 
one of the things that people are always shocked about is when pastors have sort of blow-ups or breakdowns or moral failures in a variety of ways, or they're just unkind, or they lose their patience, or they don't talk nicely to someone in the church. The reality is there is no extra grace given to pastors in terms of their Christian walk. There just isn't. And so, what you have is utterly regular, normal people trying to walk with God, as hard as that is for everyone in all of their contacts, but then also supposed to be someone who walks with God professionally. So, all of the problems that you have are magnified enormously. The truth of the matter is, I know of no empirical study which will indicate that pastors or missionaries or people who work in vocational Christian ministry in any capacity, I know of no empirical studies that show that those people are less susceptible to addiction to pornography. I know of no study which indicates that those people pray more, that that they actually read their Bible more. Now, there's a sense in which they, you read your Bible more because you're simply, you have to vocationally. But in terms of actually just hearing from the voice of God, sort of kind of like devotional reading, I know of no study that indicates that pastors do that more than anyone else. I, I, I know of no study that provides empirical returns that pastors and missionaries are any bit godlier than anyone else. I just don't know of any. In fact, a, a lot of the studies that come back would indicate that pastors and teachers are just really regular Christians, hopefully with, with particular gifts to function in particular ways. But, but being a pastor, being a teacher, does not in any way make you mature. It just doesn't. So you struggle with the same things. You, you have all the same susceptibilities to all of the variety of sins. That, that every, the, if we were to take a cross-section through this room of all of the things that people struggle with, teachers in the church are not exempted from any of that, as much as we might wish that we were. So, not many should become teachers because we know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, this is eschatological, that is, this is God, judged, God's judgment, but it's also true, this isn't the point, but it's also true, sort of horizontally, not merely vertically, that is, often pastors and teachers are simply held to a higher standard. I mean, they ought to be, in, you know, 1 Timothy 3. There, there should be a general consistency in, in what you're teaching and, and your, your conduct. There ought to be. And yet, those who teach, the one thing that can be thrown into our faces, probably rightly, but often, but also very frequently, is the charge of hypocrisy. You have preached these things, but you do this. Well, yes. Yes, indeed. I'm not sure if you ever have a breakdown between your theory and practice. 
Like, like, pastors aren't exempted from that. Yes, there are all kinds of things, I guarantee there are all kinds of things that you believe that you don't practice very well. There are all kinds of things that you hold theoretically true that you don't apply very well. Here's an example from my life, just so you know. As much as you think I'm perfectly wonderful in every way, much like Mary Poppins, the truth is I can know that I am supposed to be patient with everyone. I can be horrifically impatient. Now, it's not like someone can come along and say, just, I'm not sure if you knew this, you're actually supposed to be patient. I know. (laughs) I'm not. That's the problem. And the more I'm supposed to be patient, the more I get upset about it. So, it's just like being told, don't, don't, don't lose your temper. Well, yes, okay, great, I know it's actually making me mad that I am right now. It's not helping, it's making it worse, right? So, so for all of us, is there a breakdown between what we know theoretically and practice? Yes, of course. What most of you don't have is it thrown in, you said that, and you're a pastor? Or I'd expect more of a, well, yeah, maybe you should. But... Before we, get, before we condemn too much, James says, we all stumble in many ways. We all do. That's every one of us, myself included, Sam included, every single one of us in this room stumbles in many ways. Now, the damage, of course, is that in teaching... There is an inescapable, as much as I wish it could be escaped, there's an inescapable tie to person and vocation. So I can't go anywhere as a private citizen. Everywhere I go, I go as the pastor. It becomes defining and limiting to myself as a human being. Everywhere I go, whatever I say, whatever I do, it's indexed against the job that I have. Most of you don't have that. Now, also with teaching, though, when you're, te- depends what you're teaching. when you're teaching the Bible, you are literally dealing with matters of life and death. If you get some of that wrong, the consequences are enormous. And so, so I'm not convinced. This may be applied to high school physics teachers, I don't know, but I somewhat suspect it's, it's, it's retained or constrained to the domain of the church or to teaching people about Jesus, or to teaching people about God. You get that wrong, and all of a sudden, things are really bad for people. So, there's also a responsibility that attends to teaching, where you're telling people, in in, in a high prophetic sense, this is what God's Word says, this is what God's Word means, this is how God's Word applies. That's really tough. You get that wrong, and all of a sudden, real damage is done to people. And you're responsible, in part. You're not responsible exactly for the decisions people make, but you're responsible for the influence you had in teaching people certain things that may have misrepresented God. That's an enormous weight. You add to that, then, the proclamation of truth in life and death situations, the proclamation of truth that has implications for eternity, and then you index that against your own character and how likely you are to mess things up, and all of a sudden, you want to say, not many of us should be teaching. And then you also want to say this, don't ever, ever 
put your faith in a human teacher. Never do it. No matter how many people listen to their podcast, I, don't, I still don't know what those are, but like, no matter how many people listen to those things, no matter how many people, you know, get the audio cassette of the sermon, no matter how many people read their... We have created in Western evangelicalism a Christian celebrity culture that mirrors and apes celebrity culture in sports and Hollywood. And then we wonder why, after setting people up on incredible pedestals, then we wonder why there are, there's so much division happening in small circles of evangelicalism, why people can't get along, why different kingdoms are bickering, and why there's all kinds of huge failures in terms of authoritarianism, in terms of money abuse, in, term, in terms of uh, sexual failure. We wonder why all of this is. Well, it's partly because we're setting people up for disaster, and then everyone's shocked. But part of the thing I wonder is, why isn't there more of that in terms of failure? People are just so fallible, for goodness sakes. Like, you're really surprised when people screw up? Like, really? Have you lived in life yet? I mean, this is the one thing that shouldn't surprise you. We all stumble in many ways. Teachers, too. Everyone does. Now, if you want to know how you can be that universal in your claim, that we all stumble in many ways, it's interesting that James then doesn't say a single thing about action. All he does is talk about words. In other words, if you want the abs, if you want absolute proof that absolutely every single person on earth is evil, just listen to how every single person on earth talks for the course of their life. It is a guarantee, if you listen to the words of society, you will understand that society is a fallen place. To the point where if you could perfectly control your tongue and what you said, you'd be able to control yourself entirely. You'd be perfect. Or mature, complete, might be a better way of translating that. But, but nonetheless, if you, could, if you could totally control your words, that would be a sign that you have so much self-control that there's, there's no area of your life that, that's sort of you're your, your, your in slavery to something else. If you can control your words, then you can control anything. That, that's the idea. Because it takes so much self-control to marshal your words properly. If you can keep your tongue in check, then you shouldn't have any problem with other things as well. It's a sign of actual maturity. Now, James gives a few very helpful analogies and illustrations. First, think about a horse. You're riding a horse, as you do, you think of Ian Miller, you know, maybe, you know, equestrian, horse jumping, and so you, you, you're riding the horse, and you want the horse to turn, and so you have a bit in the mouth of the horse, and you maneuver the reins, although that's actually not how you steer a horse. It's actually your leg pressure and all the rest. You know that. But, you know, you're still guiding it with, with the bit, and so you, you turn the horse, and, and that little tiny little thing in its mouth is what helps turn the whole animal, just that little thing. Or the ship, massive ships. You think of today, they wouldn't have thought of anything like that then. But you still have large, you know, sort of wooden sailing ships in their day. You know, just, just turn the, the, the rudder a little bit, and all of a sudden it tacks in a different direction. Just a little, little thing changes the whole trajectory. And those analogies are used to say, look, 
Nothing affects the course of your life like the words that you say. Because words lead to action. Think about even, even agreeing or disagreeing about something. Con- consenting or denying. Saying yes or no. Those are the sorts of things which radically change the course of a life. The words that you say will completely set the trajectory of the rest of your days. Many of you already know this. Many of you have already said words which have set the trajectory of your life, maybe until you die. Many in this room can look back at things that they have said that they regret bitterly. Honestly, there are a lot of relationships in the world which no longer even exist except in the most estranged sense imaginable because of conversations, because of bickering, because of disagreement, because of verbal exchange. Marriages end, sometimes only because of the discourse that went on. Words absolutely radically change lives. Now, in a different context, it would be a fascinating little rabbit trail just to go scurrying down you know, speech act theory, you know, illocution, locution, perlocution, how words actually do things. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll avoid that, that philosophical discussion, although we can talk about it after. It's really interesting. Um, but, but words also cause behavior. So, for example, Bill, Bill Jensen, comes dashing up to the front as Nancy is finishing her announcements. And just, just, just to, if I recall, I might not have heard this properly, Nancy's announcement about giving, you can still give the ways that you regularly have, and it's wonderful, but you can now give online, you can text to give, but it's also really easy to give more. I'm assuming that Nancy will be leading the way in that, so thank you. Uh, that's very helpful. Uh, so Nancy's finishing the announcements, and Bill comes up, and Bill says, Jack can't find his keys. What did a bunch of you start doing? What did you start doing? You actually start looking for the keys. Words change your behavior. Someone says something, you actually, you, you act differently. You do something. Words create meaning and words create action. Uh, so, you know, when I, when I was teaching a little while ago uh, at Heritage, um, you know, we were talking about God creating with word. We are talking a little bit about this. And, and so I just said to students, I, there's a lecture going on across the hall. I said, can you just get up and close the door? So he gets up and closes the door. I said, See? All I do is I make, I make sound, I make, I make airwaves vibrate, and that person gets up out of their chair, goes across the room, and closes the door. Like, words change things in reality. Those are just simple examples. But my goodness, there are words you can say which have enormous impact on life. I hate you. I love you. It's a pretty big difference. 
in terms of life and relationship, depending on what you say. Like the bit, like the rudder, like a small spark that starts a forest fire, little things, little words, little part can change everything. Now, in case you're not quite sure if James is, has a positive view of the tongue, he then begins to say things like this. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of evil. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. That's the positive part. Verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. My goodness. Is your speech really that bad? Well, hopefully not, because there is sanctifying grace and growth and maturity with God's help. But the idea is that intuitively, our words, in a variety of forms, are going to be, at a minimum, dangerous. Things can still be dangerous and good, but dangerous and evil and destructive. That's the kind of power that we have. The book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 18, will say that um, there is the power of life and death is in the tongue. They're talking about words and, and, and perlocutionary effects, how words do things. Think of the difference between the word guilty and innocent in a capital uh, murder trial down in the States. Think of the difference between, between the judge saying one of those two words, guilty and innocent. It's all the difference. In, it's, it's literally life and death. The power of life and death is in the tongue. What we say positively can either build people up or it can destroy people. Words can destroy people. Words can tear people down. Words can ruin people. Some, in some ways, words, and I realize that, you know, we live in, in such a therapeutic society, I get this. And, you know, we live, we live in a society that, that highlights victimization. And being, and victimization is not the same as being a victim, I, I think, today, the way that, that these things get cast around all the time. I want to differentiate. Nonetheless, there are very real victims of very real abuse. And not all abuse is physical. There is emotional abuse. You, you, can, you can gut people verbally. You, you can destroy someone with the words that you say. Especially if you've got a, got a quick wit and fast tongue. You can just carve people up. Now, you can also just lie. You can gossip. You can slander. You can deceive. And I know, I realize, I realize here, this is kind of negative. Now, so James, James obviously, is, he's writing this letter to a church. He's obviously not writing to a church like us because we don't have these problems. So, 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 at the church where James is writing, I mean, probably there are people who gossip and slander. And, and we don't have anything like that here because what we do is we have prayer requests. 
And it's amazing how many sort of salacious details you can share under the guise of requesting prayer. There's just a problem here. And yes, I was told it's in confidence, but prayer requests always trump confidentiality. Just so you know. No, we can, frankly, our speech patterns can be so evil, we can even twist something good like praying for people into a cause and a reason for gossip. That's a condemnation of the heart that can do that with speech. Now, why is the tongue so evil? Well, because it's the vehicle of the expressions of our heart. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of who you really are, that's where the speech comes from. It's not like, and I'm not sure if you've ever done this, where, where you've said something, and then you backpedal, and you go, well, the, you know, that, that's not really me. No, it is. It wasn't your neighbor. And so as much as it would be really convenient to blame someone else, it was you. It was you in an unguarded moment, but it was you. It's the same thing with, it's the same thing with drinking. You, you, you realize that, that you know, people get a certain state of, in, of inebriation, start, you know, and they might say things they would never say sober. But the alcohol didn't put any of those things into their heart or into their mind. It just loosened up the inhibitions. Whatever comes out of your mouth comes out of your heart. Now, listen, we all do all kinds of things. We do say things that we regret. So part of you is, yes, it came from you, and then you might be the kind of person who regrets what you said. That's different, but it still was you. That's why you regret it. That's why you ask for forgiveness, because it was you who are responsible for those words. The fact that you feel badly that you said it is, is an indication that you know it was from you. Now, it's set on fire by hell. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's like a serpent. It's like a snake waiting to strike and destroy. You say, well, I'm not that bad. This is, okay, and, and to be fair, this is the slightly negative take on speech. Okay. There, there are lots of positive things that are said in other texts. James is here dealing with a problem. He's looking at it from one particular angle. Okay? But one of the things that he, he would insist on is this, and this is sort of where he's driving the point, I believe. Look. Our context. You show up on a Sunday morning, and you're praising God and you're so holy, And then you, you run out and throughout the rest of the week, you, you curse your boss, you, you hate your neighbor, you, you, you gossip, you slander, you, you enjoy all the, the details you hear about people's lives falling apart or whatever. You, you praise God, but then you curse people? How does that work? How's that possible? Well, who's the real you? And it would seem that here the idea is, look, you can't claim to love God unless you also love your neighbor. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. You can't praise God and curse the people who bear His image, who are like Him. It shows a fundamental problem in the same way that 
And I realize there are pedantic people who will say, well, you know, there's brackish water and down near the ocean you can get a little bit of a mixture. But you're talking, in, in Israel context, and probably in common sense context, you know, it would be really odd if you were just outside of the Guelph city limits and, and you had to drill a well and you drill a well and it's half salt water and half fresh water. That would seem strange to you probably. In Israel, they're not finding an oasis in the middle of the desert going, huh, this is like ocean water. Like, it's either salt water or it's fresh water. You don't have a mixture in your well. But we seem to have a mixture in our heart because we praise God and curse people. Can a salt spring produce fresh water? The answer is no. And so, if your words, like salt water, are not, if, if they're useless for health and hydration, if they're deadly if consumed, then it's because your heart's full of salt water, metaphorically. That's the reason. So, how do you get fresh water out of a salt water spring? How do you get good words, truly good words, out of a bad heart? You don't. You can't. You need, a new, you need a new well. You need a new heart. Frankly, the church for too long has categorized sins into big and small compartments. They've done a really good job condemning a bunch of people for a lot of things that are considered to be big sins, which I'm not quite so sure God has the same, the same weighting system that we do. I wonder how much God… I'm not saying this is unimportant. Sexual behavior, um, we're good at condemning that, depending on what's going on. God seems awfully concerned with our words. God seems really, really, really concerned with the words that we say. Frankly, when's the last time, I mean, when's the last time anyone in the church has ever disciplined just for being a jerk with their words? When's the last time we said, you know what, actually, I don't, I don't think God, God, I don't think God probably appreciates that kind of talk. When, when's the last time, like, Maybe we don't ever gossip here. It's great. When's the last time anyone around here was, was gossiping and someone said, you know what, I just, I just don't know if we need to hear that right now? Or, okay, I think that's enough. Or, you know, I wasn't there. It's none of my business. Do you, you, you realize, like, <laughs> this maybe is really oversimplified. You know, probably like 99% of gossip wouldn't happen if people just minded their own business. Maybe 100%. Like, like, why do you want to know? I don't want to know. And, and if you weren't part of the situation, what right do you have to know? How are you going to be helpful in it? If you're not, like, are you going to work towards the solution or are you just going to listen? Does the, and, and the other thing is, you have to know this. You have to know this. If you spend time with people who gossip about people who aren't there, they're going to do the same thing about you when you're not there. You must know that. 
Like, like, this is like one of the craziest things to me that people don't understand that. It's like, they, they're like, this is like a little circle where they're, they're, they're so convinced that, that they, would never, they would never break confidentiality, except that all they're doing is breaking confidences with everyone else who's not there. Like, you think you're exempted from that? That's nuts to think that way. Right? So, when's the last time we just said, you know what, that, I don't know, I wasn't there. And also, you're not a competent source. Amazing how many of these things are passed on second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth hand as it goes down the pipe. Well, even once it's second hand, the person has no idea what they're talking about, almost surely. When's the last time we said, I just don't want to hear it? Gently, hopefully. But maybe that's what we need to do a little bit more. You just really realize that like, God cares so much about our speech because our speech affects things. Words do things. Words change lives. Sets the whole trajectory of life. So, I think that actually our words should be one of the things that drives us to Jesus more than anything else. For forgiveness and for change. Lord, forgive me for how I've used this beautiful gift of speech. I mean, God's given us a gift of language so we can know each other, so we can know Him, so we can understand His Word. The gift of language is a wonderful gift, and, and, and part of the corruption and depravity of the human heart is how much we've abused it, how much we've used it against God and against other people when it was supposed to, to bring honor to God and bring community together, and we've abused that precious gift. We've used it for exactly the opposite way. Words were supposed to bring people together. That's one of the lessons you get from the Tower of Babel. Words were supposed to bring people together in common cause, and, and yet when we array ourselves against God, then all of a sudden words will confuse and divide and scatter, bring animosity and division. Uh, our words need to drive us to Jesus for forgiveness but then also for change. That is, why still be a saltwater spring if there's help to, to start to learn to talk properly? Because the positive side is with the grace of God, He can, he can forgive you, but then also start to transform you so that your speech can be edifying and build people up, which is a night and day transformation. It's literally a supernatural transformation because it's not coming out of you. It's coming out of the Holy Spirit, changing who you are fundamentally. So in Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building other people up so that it might benefit those who listen. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. The, 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 the Greek expression is pos logos. It means not one single word. Don't ever let a single word come out of your mouth unless that word will build someone up. With all the... With, all joking aside, small wonder that a lot of monasteries have vows of silence. How much talk would not exist if we only ever said things that were positive for building? Not one unwholesome word were ever to come out of our mouths. How much silence would there be in the world? My goodness, it would be so great. It would be so refreshing. It would be so wonderful. All that silence golden silence. And then when people spoke, they'd be worth listening to. It would be edifying and positive and beautiful, building people up. There's still a long way for all of us to go, okay? But let's keep working. Let's, let's put aside the old ways. Let, let's, not con let's not be mediocre with this one. This is a big one. Let's ask God to help us change how we talk. And the only way that will happen is if He starts changing our hearts.
So let's pray for that. Jesus is a God. Uh, God can change our hearts through Jesus. And what a great place. Like, I think, I think God has been working here. I, I do believe that. I do. What a, what a great place this would be if, if we grew even more in terms of encouragement, edifying. It would just be beautiful. And, 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 and it's such a better place if, if we got rid of some of the other stuff. So just, just the garbage that we just don't need. We're so used to it in the world, but let's, let's analyze it, let's identify it, let's get rid of it. It would be an awesome place to belong to. It would be an awesome community. Praising God and honoring people. That's hard to beat. We have an opportunity to praise God now, so, and we're going to do that together. So I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.